everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm introducing Libby Hawker's interview with George Stein, the author of Sing Before Breakfast, a novel of Gettysburg. We are only days away from the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse, which led to the surrender of General Robert E. Lee and soon brought to a close the four-year cycle of destruction known as the U.S. Civil War. George Stein's novel examines the crucial middle of that conflict through the eyes of a 12-year-old boy. Chapter 1. I guess I should start with what we knew of the whereabouts of the rebel army, which is to say, not very much at first. We did know that Robert E. Lee and an army some said was 100,000 strong had crossed into southern Pennsylvania, somewhere southwest of Chambersburg, and now lay stretched out all the way to the Susquehanna River. Everybody read the newspapers and gossiped constantly about the war. There had been a lot of talk about what would happen if the war came into Pennsylvania. Mostly, people didn't believe that it would and hoped that it wouldn't, but the thought persisted and hung over everything. We were all aware for the past year that General Lee, a modest Virginia gentleman career soldier, had bested every general and army the federal government had thrown at him. Only two months ago, and against all odds, he had whipped a Union army at least twice his size at Chancellorsville, Virginia. But he had done it all at a terrible cost to the South. Virginia was being torn apart, and every battle depleted his army of irreplaceable men, materials, and provisions. And all his efforts and success had carried the Confederacy not one inch closer to independence. Now, in late June of 1863, he invaded Pennsylvania, and our worst fears were realized. General Lee intended to bring his war into the North and gather supplies and try to force a settlement that would lead to southern independence. He had total confidence that his army could pull it off and those of us in his path were made to suffer for it. A division of rebels came through town and scared the Dickens out of everyone. Some of them shot a local young man off his horse and killed him before moving on towards Harrisburg. Others had come down the pike from Cashtown a few days later for a look around. By dawn on Wednesday, the 1st of July, the whole town was running around and full of anxiety about what might happen next. And now, I hope you enjoy the interview. Thank you so much for joining us today, George. I'm really glad to have this opportunity to talk to you about Sing Before Breakfast. Okay, fine. All right. Well, we typically like to start our interviews by inviting the author to tell us a little bit about themselves. So tell us how you first became interested in the Civil War and what led you to write Sing Before Breakfast. I don't know how anyone can not be interested in the Civil War. (laughs) It happens all around us here in the East, and uh, uh, it's very compelling story, and um, when you think about it, that it, every when you walk in these places, I live a, a mile from where the first battle pulled on, and every now and then I just have to, I have to think about what an incredible experience it is to live so close to the action, and yet things have changed so much. Yeah. I, I, uh, I got interested in it mainly because of just it's given my family that the subject is always being discussed and been for years. But I went to Gettysburg the first time in 1959, and um, it was such an outstanding experience. And I had a, a, a a, a, a spiritual experience, even. Toward, toward the end of the tour, we had a government guide who was uh, 
very able man, and uh, we were at the site of the, what's called Pickett's Charge, the, the final assault, which, by the way, had everything to do with whether this country was one or two countries. And uh, I, I felt that I had been there. I felt that I had been there at that low stone wall. And it was so overpowering that I sat down the, on the edge of the car and cried. I just cried and cried, couldn't stop. Wow. So I, yeah, it was uh, really remarkable. I had my family with me. So I, went, I didn't go back for about 10 years or more because it was such an overwhelming experience. I just didn't want to do it again. But I went back eventually, and uh, and I probably have been there thirty or forty times. Since. If if anyone has walked the fields of Gettysburg without being moved, it's it's really hard to imagine because it's uh, very peaceful now. Very bucolic, very uh, gentle. And when you think about what all went on right around you, it's so overpowering. You know, they talk, they say that Antietam was the bloodiest single day battle of war. And yet, Antietam went on from dawn till, 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 till dusk and involved quite an expanse of territory. Gettysburg on the second day the place near Rhodes' woods and the wheat field where it's quite a small area by comparison where the total casualties and one will never know for sure may have even exceeded Antietam in that tiny little area and uh, I cry when I go there it's hard not to so at any rate I, I became more interested in it and I read quite a number of volumes of history about it. And I never read anything that didn't learn something new, and I never went to Gettysburg that I didn't learn something new. Yeah. I've I've never been and, to Gettysburg myself, but I've heard it's just an indescribable experience. I'd really, I'd like to see it someday, just because it's so imbued with all that history, but I imagine it's a very heartbreaking experience, too. Well, it is, and I just will mention one other thing that when General Shelley Castrilli was head of the, uh, was, uh, was, uh, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Army Joint Chief of Staff, anyway, he took his generals to Gettysburg, and it's included Norman Schwarzkopf. Uh, and they did the battlefield tour, and he said that they, they realized particularly Schwarzkopf, you remember he was head of the Desert Storm, that their issues of the moral and, and spiritual issues facing the generals then were very similar to their own experience. Hmm. And some of those generals, those couple birds cried at Gettysburg. And it's hard not to. Yeah. You know, what... One of the things that I, I must say, this oh, get up for a minute. You know, George Gordon Meade was the leader of the uh, 
fascinating listening to all the knowledge you have about the Civil War in general and then about Gettysburg in particular. Um, like many people, I, I first became interested in the Civil War after reading Gone with the Wind, of course. <laughs> it's like so many people's introduction to it nowadays. Um, but ever since then, I've really searched for a, a really satisfying Civil War novel, and, and it's been really hard to find good ones. But um, your book, Sing Before Breakfast, really struck a chord with me that most other novels haven't quite managed to strike. And I think that's because your narrator, Rice, is such a memorable character, and he's such an unexpected voice for a work about the Civil War, too. So Rice is only 12 years old when General Lee begins sort of menacing southern Pennsylvania where he lives, and we begin to see the war uh, take over even the most mundane aspects of Rice's life. And soon he just gets sucked into this conflict, which, of course, would have been inevitable for everybody who lived near the site of any of more than 10,000 battles that made up the Civil War. And, of course, you can really, you can read in textbooks or, like, here in a documentary that boys as young as Rice and even younger were affected by the Civil War, but nothing brings home the reality of that quite like a good novel. So why did you choose Rice as your narrator instead of a more uh, sort of marquee name such as one of the generals? Well, one of the reasons was I could I could ask naive questions. Yeah, I could appear as excuse me. I could be naive and innocent. I wouldn't have to be all knowing. Yeah, and you know when you when you speak to the voice of a general, you better know what you're talking about. Yeah, a twelve year old boy could ask all the dumb questions there were to ask. Yeah. <laughs> Double purpose of that. War is a terrible thing. Yeah. And this child, seeing all this happen and having heard all about the war from an explorer's standpoint, could not, never could reconcile what he saw with what he had been raised to believe, as I said, was good and honest and fair treatment of uh, human beings. It, it's, uh, it must be, I'm not a combat veteran, I was in the Marine Corps, it never saw combat. It must be terrible to see men torn apart. Yeah. And uh, so, I felt that Rice could be the voice of anybody. He was sort of a uh, common man before he was boiled. And, uh, there was any innocence about him that I enjoyed writing about. 
Yeah, and, he is. Uh, he's a really wonderful character to to spend time with, and it's 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 both touching and and kind of heartbreaking to see the war through his eyes because you can definitely see how it changes him. And um, as he finds himself kind of swept along in the build-up to the Battle of Gettysburg, he encounters a whole bunch of what we might call big players in the Civil War. And this gives the reader a chance to really observe these tiny fragments of the Civil War, and of Gettysburg in particular, that add up to this almost mythic history that we know of today. And it's fascinating to see how so many varied personalities collide to form this overall much larger conflict. It sort of reminds me of the way you can have several smaller storm systems that kind of come together and form one gigantic hurricane. And um, I really learned a lot about the Civil War from your book. One passage that really jumped out at me happens when Rice enters what he refers to as the land of the generals. And I didn't realize that there were actually more than a thousand generals involved in the Civil War, and that more than a hundred of them were present at Gettysburg. I mean, we remember all of those who had field command, as Rice points out, but we've forgotten all these other hundreds of players who took part in the command of the Civil War. But, you know, I guess they have that old idiom that history books are written by the victors. How true do you think that is in the case of the Civil War? And how is the conflict between the South and the Union still impacting the United States more than 150 years later? Well, you know, those men were, many of them were brevet. Appointments. You know what brevet means in the military? No. Well, it has to do with if you're assigned a rank of general, brevet general, that means that for the for the period of it's brief, brief. So that here's a reason: when you have uh, a million men under arms, and you may have a hundred uh, generals, say, as soon as the war is over. Those men go back to civilian life. Ah, I see. And, and you got generals generalizing no one. Yeah. So there was a temporary appointment, if you could say, for the emergency. And um, by the way, many of those generals who were appointed toward the end of the war, on March 13th, 1865, there were like a hundred appointments of general. They knew the war was winding down, and they wanted to reward people for service. And uh, it's common talk in the military. When you know the date of appointment, it was because of a certain battle. And among the military at the time, they used to say, it must have been a hell of a battle on March 13, 1865 for all those generals to be appointed. <laughs> it, it was administrative. And um, so some of those generals really weren't what we think of as combat generals. In fact, most of them weren't. Wow. But I want to say one other thing I skipped that I didn't mean to. Oh, sure. One of the reasons I used Rice Bramble as an example, or as a, as a character protagonist, was... I had become aware, I had become very much knowledgeable about the Civil War. I become aware of how little was knowledgeable was among the common person about the Civil War, and particularly young people. Mm -hmm. They didn't have any idea what it was about. And it's part of our history we should know about. And so I thought, I wrote, originally wrote, met this book to be, a book for young people, 
that would introduce them to history in a way that they could identify with and it maybe entice them to keep on reading. And I, I think it's been successful to some extent. But one little example, there's a boys' school in Putney, Vermont, called the Greenwood School. There was recently on TV a program produced by Ken Burns, you know, the guy did Civil War. Oh, yeah. Well, the, well, the, the address. Uh, you saw that or not? Um, I believe it I did, yeah. These boys are all, it's a boarding school, and these boys all have learning difficulties to some extent. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're not intelligent, but they have dyslexia and uh, ADHD, or ADHD and that sort of thing. And this was this is a school where they, they, they come from pretty good families, where they're sent and they board there, and there's only about 50 of them. But they are intensely taught. Uh, how to speak and how to uh, think and so forth. And they, one of the things they're required to do every year is memorize and give before an audience the Gettysburg Address. Oh, wow. Which is quite painful for some of them. Mm-hmm. And, and very difficult. Now, these boys are able to range in age from about 10 to 17 years old. It's, and it may have a a banquet, and all the parents come, and it's quite a formal affair. And each boy gets up and recites the Gettysburg Address. And they get prizes out for those that do the best job. I saw that, and I was so moved by it. Ken Burns did a wonderful job of covering the school and the people at it. Then I wrote to them, and I asked, I said I had, I sent them, I said I had written a book that I think would be Oh, by the way, these boys all go to Gettysburg on a bus during during the school year sometime after the first of the year. And I said I'd be willing to donate books for each boy to have one if you did. I got a nice email back from the librarian, and she she said, thank you for a generous offer. And I, I sent them 10 books. Oh, well, nice. Recently, I recently heard from her and that there, she has instructors and other uh, the people who have uh, uh, learning, what is it called? Uh, speech language pathologists. Mm-hmm. Yes, And they have... Um, a number of other people who are are, are in good are instructors and tutors. She has now. She said she just sent me an email. She had a request for twenty one books. Oh, that's great! <laughs> they had read it enough to want it. I sent them another box of twenty five, and I was hoping that this might light the way to other schools if they know that they, they could use them and they receive, well, like the Greenwood School, then other children might want to use them. So we'll see what happens there. That's that's great, though. I mean, it sounds sounds like they must be getting a lot of interest from the students, so it, it sounds like you're you're starting to achieve that goal of, of really reaching out to younger people and making sure they don't right. forget about the Civil War and all these important parts of history. 
well that they become interested in history and want to, you know, the reviews I've gotten, if you ever want to read them, they're, they're in Amazon's reviews. Mm-hmm. I've, all five-star reviews, but they're, they're four-star. They're, they're so overwhelmingly reassuring that everyone has enjoyed this book very much and, and that it should be a, a, a wonderful history for children and adults. Consistent. The last one. Yeah, absolutely. I got one one from a judge recently that I thought was very compelling. He thought that uh, all children ought to read a book. But anyway, I I digress, and I'm sorry. (laughs) That's all right. No, you're you're clearly fascinated by the history of the Civil War, which which is great. And I was really impressed with just how much of that historical detail is wound into Sing Before Breakfast. It feels like such a natural part of the narrative, too, which is really nice and refreshing to read, because sometimes that's not the case with historical fiction. But everything from, you know, how Grammy makes her potato soup (laughs) to the specific ways all these different armies would array themselves for battle is all tied into this story. And it paints such a fantastic portrait of not only war strategy and army life during the Civil War, but also of the lives of just everyday people who are caught in the crossfire of this conflict. How long did you spend yeah. researching Sing Before Breakfast, and did you use any special sources to find out more about life during this era? Well, I can't put a time line on it because maybe I uh, I spent years reading about it. Yeah. Not, not collecting notes or anything, but just becoming knowledgeable about it. And then I, one day I just sat down and began to write it, and it un- it unfolded itself to me. Yeah. So I, I can't tell you how much time I put in it. I I put time in in a different way than is usually given to a test like that. Well, that makes sense, though. Um, but in addition to Rice and these various famous war kind of celebrities that he meets, your novel has so many really wonderful, interesting characters. Did you base any of these sort of supporting roles on real people? What's that? Did you base any of the um, the extra characters in the book besides just Rice on any real people? Well, they're based on reality. Yeah. I think that uh, General Hancock is very realistic and General Meade is very realistic. However, Bum Piles is my favorite character. Have you recall him or not? Yes, I like Bum a lot, too. Oh, Codger. <laughs> well, a fellow gave me a story about bone piles many years ago in my cabin up in West Virginia, and I found that Bum was such a, was a real man that really lived at that day, was such a such a remarkable character that I had to use him in the book, and Bum becomes also a focal point or a, a, a or morality. And for seeing both sides of the story, Bones, unlike Rice, has lived many years, and Bones still comes down on the side of what's right. And, uh, you know, I was in, there's a place west of Gettysburg called Cashtown. Mm-hmm. It's its name for the fact that it had one time a, it was a turnpike, and people would try to pay off with. Uh, Ducks and chickens and cabbages and so forth. And finally, the proprietor says, no more produce, cash only. And they call it cash now. Huh. 
there's a wonderful old inn there that's still being run by a young couple from Pittsburgh called the Cash Town Inn. I love the place with all my heart. And I'm, by the way, I'm in a wheelchair now. I can't get around like I used to. But uh, anyway, at, at Cash Town is uh, where the federal, uh, the Union, I'm sorry, the Confederate forces came down over the mountain there, South Mountain, and, and took up position. When uh, I was there many years ago, I had a dear friend, this, the book is dedicated to it, was an old fighter pilot from World and before World War II. I loved him with all my heart. Mm-hmm. He died at 95. And uh, he and I would tour battlefields and cry together and so forth. And we were in the, at the uh, little bar in the Cash Town Inn. And an old fellow came in. His name was Glenn. And I don't know anything more about his name than that. That was Bum Piles Personified. <laughs> and, and that was part of my, the rest of my inspiration. Oh, putting him in there. He was familiar with Gettysburg. He lived there all his life. He was a man of of great articulation of not good English. <laughs> and uh, so that was, Glenn was partly bone piles. <laughs> I love that story. That's great. Um, one of the things that... <laughs> not bone piles, not being able to hear very well, and, and uh, the kids used to hide in the weeds and yell, you woe to his horse. That's the first story. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, Bum is a very, uh, really wonderful part <laughs> of the story. Um, another thing that really adds to the overall experience of your book are these absolutely beautiful illustrations by your son, Doug Stein. They really, yeah. really bring a lot of atmosphere and sense of character to the story, and I was so happy to see a novel with these gorgeous plate illustrations, which used to be very common in publishing, but has really fallen by the wayside recently in adult fiction is even becoming rare in books meant for younger kids too what made you decide to use illustrations and sing before breakfast well i'm i'm proud of his work and i was writing this book and he knew it i didn't read some of it because he knows more about the civil war than i do i think oh yeah and uh, and he was he's an artist and he said hey pop would you like me to do a uh, some illustrations for it. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. Well, he got into it. And uh, I think the first one he did was the, the fellows on the cover, the old cavalry sergeant. Yeah. We got we got the guy from next door that looked just like that. <laughs> Set him on a fence rail and uh, had him took his picture and then he went from there. Well, he was he was such a success. I thought that then he get Granny banging the triangle and the yeah. <laughs> and one thing led to another, and it, it, it was hard for him to keep up. But he did. He stopped his other work and did this. You know, if you notice his art, where where the horse's rump is shiny, yeah, it, it's shiny from black and white lines by the hundreds of thousands of horsehairs. Yes. Everything on that is just a series of, of ink, pen and ink drawings. 
Yeah, I, I mean, the, the detail is amazing. They're really, really wonderful works of art. I think they are, too, and I'm uh, like a temperate crowd of Yeah, your son's My incredibly talented. Is, is the one toward the end where he says, here, boy, fetch yourself a little glory. Yeah. A man is put, putting a musket in the boy's hand at the at the put of the wall where Pickett's charge came in, and the boy's horrified look on his face. I think that's such a well done. It There's is wonderful, yeah. I mean, you can definitely... Every, every thread in those blanket rolls is drawn in. Yeah, it, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It, it's really, really well done work, and it adds so much to the experience of, of reading the book. Another part of the story that really struck me on a personal level is when Rice muses about how he's grown used to the battlefield. And he compares it to a friend who used to live near a tannery and who said that after a while you just get to the point where you don't notice the stench anymore. And Rice sort of realizes that after only two days of exposure to this incredibly bloody battle, he's already growing a little bit inured to the horrors of it. My husband's a veteran, and I've heard similar sentiments from other veterans, too. And yet we don't ever really entirely grow used to war, do we? I, I think that's there's always some part of the sort of tannery that we can always smell even if we think we can't. And maybe that's why Americans still find the Civil War so compelling and so important. Why do you think the Civil War continues to hold such vast psychological why, why, importance why, to Americans today? Why do I think what? Why do you think the Civil War continues to hold such importance to Americans today? Oh, because, well, it was an overwhelming uh, event, and it, it, it happened when... We were at a critical time in our history. Mm -hmm. You know, we weren't really a solid nation at that time. We were uh, a rather loose group of states that there was an argument about governments, governance even then. And uh, Abraham Lincoln, I think, had the vision to see that a great country would come out of this, could come out of it, and he was the one thing he would never change his mind about, and that was to preserve the Union. And thank God he did. Yeah. <laughs> because I feel like if he hadn't have done it, it would have been two lesser countries. There would have been no one to stand up to the Japanese and the German war machine. There would have been no one to stand up to the Soviet Union like the United States has. And the morality of this country... Is, is something that very seldom has been held in powerful nations. Powerful nations usually want to grab power. Yeah. But instead of defending it. But the reason people are interested in it, it is, it's, uh, well, the same reason they're interested in any story about war. It's a drama. Mm-hmm. Incredible drama. And it, and it happened right here. You know, it's the only war we ever had right on our doorstep. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, and and I think everybody tries to take advantage of it. There's uh, Hollywood has done it. They've done a lousy job mostly. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm sorry to say that, but they, they, they have, and they portray uh, even the, the novels, I think, that have got acclaim like uh, uh, what is it? Killer Angels? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's a very successful book and all, but but there's a lot about it that I find fault with, but mainly it is that so much of it is contrived, and you, I can tell it's been contrived. Yeah. I, the, the voices of the people in my book are as close to being accurate as I can make it. Some of it are actual quotes. Hmm. Like there's a place in there where General Meade goes out to find General Sickles, who's not where he's supposed to be. And the conversation between the two of them, that's the one where Rice says, you found out early on if you're going to be successful with a general, you have to know where to put your face, you have to hide your face. Oh, yeah. Well, he heard General Meade and General Sickles having an argument, not a, a military argument, so argument. That's a combination of of um, actual quotes and some that I put in their mouth. But I don't think you can tell where one tape left off and the other begins. No, I couldn't. It seems that felt all very natural. <laughs> so <laughs> I would have to say yeah. that was a success, too. Well, the book full of that. The book is full of that. You know, General uh, Hancock says, uh, yes, go in there and you go in pretty goddamn well quick, sir. Well, that's an actual quote, but I have him swearing a lot because he did swear a lot. Yeah. I didn't read it all like that, but I put it in. General Meade had a more avuncular conversation. You know, he said things like that. It's not well to speak ill of our fellow generals or thunderation and confounded and that sort of thing. Hmm. That's characteristic of him. You know, when people ask me how much of that is are real quotations and how much of it I wrote, sometimes I can't remember. <laughs> I've woven it together so, so meticulously and so accurately. So, uh, not accurately, but authentically, that I can't tell that this late date whether... And you know, the one thing I've tried to avoid, though, I honestly mean this, is any kind of plagiarism. Right. I, I feel clean, but there's one line in there that troubles me. And I, a lot of these phrases are mine. They're all mine, except, you know, what I attribute for. There's one there about the men out in the battlefield after the battle at night trying to bring back and find the wounded friends and there's a line in there about turning up one old dead face after another you know when I read that when I read my own book and I read it I think did I write that or did I copy that from someone Yeah, that's the only place I know where I have trouble but I thought that's, that I may have lifted that from somebody that phrase, but I'm not sure that I did. I think that's a, a common concern for anybody who writes historical fiction. You know, I think you're always going to have those moments where you're like, "Wait a minute, did I come up with that, or is that from my notes somewhere?" <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, speaking well, I, of of writing, have you written any other books, or are you planning to write and publish more? Well, you know, it's interesting you should ask right now. Um, first of all, I'm 82 years old. Not that that should matter, but secondly, I'm in a uh, temporarily, I've been here now since March, in a 
accessible hotel room where I've got accessible to a shower and, uh, and uh, with assistance in a toilet and so forth. And that's a, a, in a permanently in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. That's a much of a handicap. But also, my right hand is getting numb to the point where I find it very difficult to type like I used to be able to. I could type at one time about a hundred words a minute. That's that's down to zilch right now. Oh. And, and so between that and that whole thing, and I, I don't see as well as I used to. I don't mean a blur. I mean like it's like I can't see the print on the screen as well. And so. I, yes, I have other books I want to read, right? And uh, I won't get into the boring details right now, but but uh, I, I've got one called The Magic Book. And uh, it's about, uh, it's a fantasy, but it's about a, a boy who's, who's given a book that's magic and, and what it contains. I have another one about... Uh, uh, it, it, I, I may run it together about a man who uh, lives off in the woods and how that came about and what he has to do with life and so forth. But no more on the Civil War. Yeah. It is a, a bit of a heavy topic. I can see why you wouldn't want to tackle it a second time. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also that I've... Um, I'm pretty well exhausted to Gettysburg from my from my perspective. I and I, I know a lot about Antietam, mm-hmm. and I know a lot about uh, right where I live, Manassas. But I, I don't know whether I want to take that up again. It's in order in order to do it, I do it well, and I have to learn as much as I do about Gettysburg. Which, which was a passage of time. It was over a passage of years to become a, a qualified expert in that business. Now, I can't just do that about, I could write about Antietam, but everybody's written about Antietam. They're better than I. I, I will feel that my book as a fiction will stand up to any, about Gettysburg will stand up to anybody's. I couldn't say that about other phases of the Civil War. I could do it about other things in life that were more like to experience. One other thing I have, I'll shut up then. Okay. Is I have written a number of small vignettes about faith, about love, about about winter, about spring, about experiences of my life. The time I almost met the Pope. Oh. And, uh, I met, and about the time I met Einstein, I'll oh, have to wow. say that. Well, I was a debt, I was a debt collector for I was college, uh, going to college and collecting bills from people who didn't pay their bills. A terrible job. Yeah, I bet. But then one fellow was a nice guy, and he tended bar up in a little place to Western Maryland. And he sold fishing worms. He did all kinds of stuff to make a big guy. 
a friendly, nice guy. And he told me that he also sold fish and worms to Albert Einstein. And I said, get out. He said, no, really. He says, he, 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 Albert Einstein spent many years at Deep Creek Lake on a vacation. So he said, come up sometime, I'll take you down and meet him. <laughs> well, I thought, well, honey. I, next time I had to go see him and look for him, he wasn't, I couldn't find him, but he had an old great panel truck. And I spotted it down near the lake, and I drove over and caught up with him. He said, hey, George, he said, I'm taking Al. He told him Al. <laughs> taking Al is worms. Would you like to meet him? <laughs> I said, well, it's, yes. We went down on the end of a talk. Here, said a little man in a tank neck sweater. And I walked up with and this guy's name was John Steidling. He said, Hey, Al, I brought your worms. I bet somebody wants to meet you. And this little old man turned his head toward me, and by God, it was him. <laughs> and he just gave a little nod of his head, and he reached for his worms, and he put his worms down, and he went back to fishing. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's a great story. I, I, went, I, went, I went, oh, my wife said, how's your day go? I said, well, I'm not over at She said, you what? got some little vignettes like that in there. And about the time when I was in the Marines, I was in Algeria and went out of the large foreign legion. And I have a kepi yet and the medals they gave me. And, you know, things like that, that. I have over 300 of them. And I'd like to put them together in a book. I was doing them for my grandchildren. Yeah. It might make a nice little, nice little book on uh, stories. And I think I do write fairly well. I think you definitely so, uh, write very well, and I would love to see a collection of just vignettes from your life. It sounds like you've had so many fascinating experiences. Well, maybe I will send you some just as an example. I would love to read them. I hope you will. Okay, I, I need to know. What's your? Do I have your email address? Yes, your publicist has it. She'll give it to you, and um, yes, please do pass them along. I would love to read them. Okay, I will send you uh, a few to whet your appetite. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I'd love to put them together in a book, and I thought about calling them Short Reflections on a Long Life. That sounds like <laughs> a perfect title. Well, George, we are just about out of time here, so I have to wrap up our call. I've really, really enjoyed my time with you, and thank you Me so too. much for sharing your thoughts on the Civil War and on your novel and on meeting Albert Einstein over a can of worms. <laughs> and thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today you've been listening to Libby Hawker's interview with George Stein, the author of Sing Before Breakfast, a novel of Gettysburg. You can find out more about him and his books at www.singbeforebreakfast.com. That's one word, Sing Before Breakfast. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. At blog.cplesley.com, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. The New Books Network is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider visiting our website at http colon slash slash newbooksnetwork.com and making a donation. 
That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.